you know, welcome back a- to the segment. Sorry, I was just going to say, there's a great ACDC song about the clap. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. We just wrapped up a fantastic stage of the Tour de France, the fourth stage from Redon to Fougere. And we've got a special guest on the podcast today. I'm going to introduce him last, so uh, we'll build the suspense a little bit. Abby Mickey, how are you? Hello, I'm. I finally stopped crying. Everything's fine. Nobody worry about me. <laughs> what, what were you crying about? Oh man, just the like best comeback ever. You you literally you could not have have written that as a piece of fiction to be a better finish of the Tour de France. I don't think. No, you you literally could not have. Like you you honestly it. You couldn't have. You, it's just, I'm like, I'm trying to write this story and I'm like speechless. I, li- I cannot find the words. To, and there's so many words. It's like there's almost too many words. <laughs> we'll come back to that in a second. Shoddy Dave, how are you today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm just, like Ab says, great comeback. But it's not the greatest comeback of all time. It's close, but not the greatest. It's up there. It's up, it's there. up there. It's up there. Definitely. Ronan, I see you on the ground. How is the actual Tour de France today? The actual Tour de France is good, yeah. I've uh, just managed to find myself a seat at some camper van. Don't know who any of these people are, but I'm using their electricity and I'm waiting for them to tell me where to go. Is there a barbecue? <laughs> There's no barbecue yet, but maybe by the time we're finished here, they might have it. <laughs> and our special guest today, Nathan Haas. Pro cyclist with Cofidis. How are you today? Well, I'll come in on the typical Cofidis way and say bonjour à tous. <laughs> we thought we'd have you on today because, well, we just wanted we want a little pro perspective. You've done the Tour de France, and you're going to help us kind of unpack both today's stage and some things I think related to what's happened already this tour. You and I were texting, and I think you have some opinions on that front so we'll let you uh we'll let you voice those i think later in the episode before we do though <laughs> shoddy dave what are we learning about continental today okay deep breath after the chaos of the last few days your tires aren't always going to help you in some of the crash situations we saw on stage one to stage three but there are times when having the right balance and grip and speed will make all the difference that's where the Continental's black chili and laser grip comes in. Anyone who's seen Continental's GP5000 tyres in black and tan walls will recognise the distinctive lasered micro profile. It's a structure that expands over the tyre's shoulder. Combined with their famous black chili compound, they provide outstanding cornering and grip. So, when you're in your local uh, group ride, crit race, or even out for a solo mission, riding Conti GP5000s can give you that extra edge and peace of mind. Just what all the peloton wanted over the past couple of days. They'll all be swapping to them in the, within the next three weeks. Thank you, Shadi. Let's get on with the show. Thank you, Continental, as always, for sponsoring today's episode. I think where to, I always ask where to begin at the beginning of these these episodes, and I think that that is clear today. We are going to begin with the winner of the stage. We have a stage win for none other than Mark Cavendish. It was a bit of a nail biting finish. Uh, totally unclear that the peloton had timed it properly. We had Brent Van Boer, uh off the front with. About a minute ahead of the peloton with less than 10 kilometers to go. The peloton certainly left it quite late. And his own teammates were doing a pretty darn good job of swinging through the pace line and slowing things down and doing some some light blocking, basically. And it looked up until maybe the last K, K and a half, that he was going he to su- make it. He survived the first few days on the moor, and then the moor showed us all. <laughs> he did not. He did not. It was a, a bit of heartbreak for him. Got caught at about 50 meters to go, 75 meters to go. It was very close to the line. And charging past came none other than Mark Cavendish on the, we- on the wheel of Jasper Philipson. 
uh, Alpes and Phoenix did a bit of a lead-out swap today. Tim Merlier was doing the final lead-out, and Philipson was the designated sprinter, but was not able to hold off the Manx Missile, who adds a Tour de France victory to his tally. How do we feel about this? I feel great about this. I feel so happy about this. I love a comeback story. I love an underdog story. And it's an even better story when the underdog becomes the top dog, becomes the underdog, and wins. What a roller coaster. Well, this is, I, I, you're, a li- you're a little bit split, right? Normally, I would be sad that that, that Brent didn't take the victory, right? You, 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 you root for... The breakaway rider in that situation he put his heart and soul and body on the line today got caught so close from the, to the finish but if you are going to get passed by somebody i feel like getting passed by mark cavendish this year of all years that that's it's still a happy ending to today's stage it, it was that emotion of going, oh, come on, come on, Brent. And then, oh, oh come on, come on, Cav. There was like a, a microsecond of a dip of disappointment for him. I, I think in all sports, you know, there's some games, it doesn't really matter who you root for. It's like the the person that actually won was the game today. And and I think cycling really won today. And, and that was my first feeling when Cav crossed the line. You know, I've, we'll go into this later you know i've got a a very long old friendship with cap so you know i've got a little bit of bias and i think we all do in the, in our different ways but when cav won today i just felt like something really good in cycling happened it's not often your route for the millionaire is it <laughs> <laughs> or call him an underdog or call him an underdog but it's 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 been it's been such a well an interesting last couple years for cav right i mean Actually, you know what? Before we go anywhere, let's just play the post-race interview. In case anybody missed it, it was on TV right after the the, the stage. But it's, I, I think it says it all. So let's listen. Abby, get your tissue box out again. I must it because, of course, I'm at the tour and you don't see anything of the tour at the tour. So I have not heard it yet. I always tell people this and no one believes me that you don't actually see the Tour de France when you're covering the Tour de France, but it's Ronan is confirming it for me. Anyway, let's hear let's hear from Cav. Stage number 31. Wow, that victory is special now. I don't know. What to, I don't know what to say, man. Like just being here is special enough, you know. Didn't think I'd ever get to come back to this race. Take us through it. Take us through it. Take us through the, the finish. Might be easier to talk about the finish and the way and the way you want it. Just fire, man. Just fire from the whole team. We didn't know if we were going to get them. Um, and then Lula, we lost Ballero. He had his wheel, same things happened to me, lost the spokes with wheel. And then you just see what a team this is, you know. You've got the green jersey, the world champion, Julian Philippe. He just comes just to get the final pull to try and catch the, the breakaway, you know. Just putting everything in, you know. Like, for so many people didn't believe in me, you know. And these guys do. And they did, and... You've you've always believed in in yourself, or, or were there moments where you thought, "No, nah, I'm not going to win another stage of the Tour de France." Honestly, well, I thought I was never coming back to this race. Honestly, you know, when you come to to, to kind of quick step, we've got the best riders in the world, you know. So it wasn't even a thought to come here. But the stars aligned somehow, you know. Um, like, I never, never ever want bad things to happen to other people. But after the last years, it's just nice to have like some good luck, you know, for myself. And, and yeah, fuck. Oh, sorry. Don't, don't cry, smile. I'm sure there's a smile. There is a smile behind that mask, Mark. You just want another stage of the Tour de France. Enjoy the Thanks. podium. Thank you. That was a, a tearjerker. 
I, I think that not a, not a whole lot of dry eyes in the press room, I would imagine. Uh, certainly no dry eyes wherever Abby is at the moment. But amazing, right? I mean, he said it. He, he wasn't expecting to ever come back to this race. Not only did he come back to this race, he now takes a stage win. Uh, I'm reticent to mention the, the Eddie Merckx record, but he's one closer to that. We can't sort of completely ignore it, right? He's, he's he, In theory, there are enough opportunities now in this Tour de France that he could, he could match that now. But I think that that's a secondary thing. The, the, the big thing was just... This return from a couple really, really hard years from Epstein-Barr virus, from lots of people not believing in, in him and his ability, and, and I think reasonably so, thinking that he was basically just over the hill, right? And that he was never going to return to his former glory. He ends up at this Tour de France through basically a bit of luck on his end, right? We, we Sam Bennett should have been at this bike race, ended up with some knee issues, Cav said in that interview, you know, he doesn't want to take, he doesn't, he doesn't want to take something uh, off the back of someone else's misfortune. But you can't, you can't blame Cav for that, right? And he he had a bit of luck coming into this race, ends up getting picked for the tour team, and immediately rewards Dakuna Quickstep. Though, really, just a a fairy tale. I, I I like I said at the beginning of the show, I can't imagine trying to write a piece of fiction with a better ending than today's stage right like the narrative is epic you know cav came in as a neo pro and won four stages of the tour de france when rolf aldag sort of took high risk in actually saying i want to take this guy i think he's the next big thing he comes and he delivers and then he does it again and again and again and then all of a sudden he's the mark cavendish that we know he was the greatest of all time and then he moved across to die data and he won four stages before heading off early because he was preparing for the Olympics and then lights kind of went out you know he got Epstein-Barr virus at the end of that year and it was a really rocky you know few years for him and then he went to Bahrain and you know it just we never saw Cav again you know I was in the peloton with him and it was you know it was always kind of sad when his team was trying to do a lead out and he couldn't even hold on to the wheel and then at the end of last year I, I don't think there was anyone that enjoyed seeing that interview of Cav at his last race where he said, guys, this might be my last ever bike race. And it was like, this is not how the greatest of all time goes out. This is not right. Like there's something broken in the script here. And then he kind of got this, you know, last chance saloon just to come race again because Cav just wanted to go bike racing. And he went back to Belgium doing all these small races and he turned off his power meter. He just went old school and he said, this is all I ever wanted to come back and do was just to race my bike, actually feel like a bike racer. And then Turkey happened. No one expected that. And then he didn't only just win one stage, he went and won four. And then he backed that up all of a sudden at the Belgium tour, sort of at this like crazy exciting period where all the best sprinters in the world, you could say minus one or two, were at the Belgium tour and he won the last stage. And it was like, wow, that was, that was legit amazing. And then the next thing, is this sort of whole Sam Bennett debacle, which just adds to the, the narrative of what makes this so beautiful, is that the rest of cycling and any other cycling team would have taken Cav with that hot streak of form, and it also being Cav. And then the next thing, Sam's in, Sam's out, Cav's saying, guys, don't stress, I'm not, you know, I'm not invested in this, this isn't, this isn't an expectation. Next thing, Cav gets a last-minute call up to the Tour de France, which is like normally reserved for the you know second and third rank riders in a pro tour team, where they get a last-minute call up and then he comes and wins, and he just cements this beautiful story that Cav was meant to be at the Tour de France. I feel like that was his life's calling, and he's just done it again, and it's just so beautiful to see it happen. I like how you brought up the fact that when he returned to racing, he, he turned off his power meter and all that, lot because he wouldn't really have this career if there wasn't people who believed in him for for not having the numbers because when he was back with British cycling as a as a junior his power numbers were atrocious apparently like they were ready to drop him but Rod, Rod Ellingworth saw something in him and it, he got the results at the races no matter how bad his power numbers were and that obviously rolled on in onto his telecom days where I remember reading somewhere he's in his first Tour de France and he's just freaking out because he is not hitting the numbers that he should be doing. And Dave, he rolled back to the back of the peloton or something, said to Dave Miller, 
what do I do? Dave Miller said, just tape over that SRM power meter, what he was using back then, and race how you race. Don't worry about the numbers. And look, X amount of years later, telecom, HTC, Dimension Data, Quick Step Ethics, and we've got 31 stages to his name. It's pretty amazing. What what a what a I don't know if this is the if this is the finale, right? I, I think I said in the podcast yesterday I thought he would win two stages. I still think he'll win one more, maybe even more now. Uh, but it is a it it's a it's a fantastic bit of narrative, and you can't help but but cheer for him, right? Uh, let's talk about the actual sprint today. I mean, it was pretty impressive as well. I mean, you know, he he was positioned relatively well. His team was all there. Um, whether he's got the power numbers right now or not, you know, we've said over and over and over again on this podcast that sprinting is, yes, it's about power, but a lot of it is just about belief and and essentially willingness to put yourself in in the right place at the right time. And he did that today. He was perfectly situated coming into that finale. He was right on the wheel of that Alpecin Phoenix train, which again, we mentioned yesterday, I think is probably the best pure lead out for the last 500 meters in the race right now, which is saying something because Takuna Quickstep has a pretty damn good lead out, but they had just done the whole whole pulling of uh, of, of Moorback, to Moorback, jumped on that on that lead out train, sat on the wheel perfectly, came around right at the, at the finish and looked like he had that old calf punch again he looked like the old calf to me and that's again what makes me think he's gonna potentially do this again throughout the tour de france because he looks like he has a belief in himself which we, we said is so important and he's got the power as you say there's still possibly about five six stages left that are for sprinters or at least for guys who can get to the finish and get get a sprint in there you know, I had a little freak out when uh, the peloton was actually passing Demur. I thought Cav was on the wrong side of that. And uh, I thought for a second that this could be too chaotic. But Cav has this rare ability that I think only two or three cyclists in the peloton have right now, Sagan being another, is that they've got this ability in these like high-stress, high-speed moments to slow the whole game down. And if you actually watch it, Cav took one or two... Well, I wouldn't call them seconds, but one or two moments of actually not pedaling, like very smoothly sweeping around it, but then using that sweep to actually get back into the kind of, into the wind of the wheels and actually use that to slingshot again. And for me, that's an artist. And and that's what Cavs always been as a sprinter. And you have some sprinters that can only win off the back of their own team, but Cav also made some instinct calls earlier on in that lead out after his team did everything that they could to bring Demua back, Cav made the decision to actually jump off his train and to use someone else's. And and I think that that's the difference between a good sprinter and a great sprinter is knowing when that's the right thing to do. And for me today, it was just pure art. What Cav did today was just cycling art, and I loved watching it. Yeah, on, on that note, I actually spoke to Mikael Morku on, on the finish line here, and he told me that you know, he felt that his legs were fading, having chased uh, the moor down, and he didn't have it in himself to to lead Cav out, so to speak. So he just, you know, focused on positioning Cav on the on the right wheel coming into the finish. And then, as you just said, Nathan, we we watched him then surf the wheels, and it was one of those it was one of those sprints where you think, you know, there's no way he can find his way out of here. It's an uphill sprint to the line. There's no way he can come around Philipson. There's no way he can hold on. But somehow he did all three of those things and and takes it to the line. Yeah, Cav's a guy that's got nothing to lose now, you know. Everyone else is is hunting their career-defining moments, but I think Cav, with so many, are in his back pocket. And, you know, with the rough trot that he's had the last few years, he's just he's just a man without fear, and, and you can see that. You know, Nathan, you said before, and I'd heard this from, from well, from Cav's own mouth last, last fall, that he just... He just really wanted to keep racing. Just loves being a bike racer, right? Do you think that this is like, is he looking for a way to cap a career or is he just going to continue to be a bike racer as long as he possibly can as someone that knows him? Well, Cav's got nothing left to do in cycling. You know, I think the he's had the yellow jersey. He's been world champion. He's won more stages of the Tour de France than anyone else. He's won Grand Tour stages at every Grand Tour. He's won Milan San Remo, which is the classic for the sprinters. He's won Sheldon Prize. So 
I don't think Cav like Cav honestly is not chasing the Eddie Merckx record. If it happens, that's cool. But for Cav, he is like you said, he's just a bike racer, and he just didn't want that to ever end. And I've never met somebody who is so doggedly hungry at every single point in his career and consistently so i think that that's the hardest thing for cyclists to do is to stay hungry the whole time but it's also the greatest skill if you've got it and i think that that's the thing that defines all the best cyclists in the world is their hunger and cav is hungrier than anyone else and the lion always gets the, the hungry lion always gets the first feed as they say now obviously you were with him at dimension data back in what 2016 2017 so you what's he like on the days when uh he knows the stage is perfect for him and the race is perfect for him what's he like in the the morning of that of that race i've worked with a lot of really good leaders in cycling you know dan martin hezardal marcel uh, viviani but cav for me is always the standout as the best leader i've ever had the honor of working with in that cav is so consistent between mountain stages, races that aren't for him, races that are for him, and then his, his target races. And Cav does this thing where he doesn't actually make the day at all about him. And I've seen him do this many a time where he'll actually go to the room of the, the neo-pro that's struggling in the race. And he'll go and sit in the room with them and just talk to them about their life. You know, how's your wife doing? You know, when are you seeing your mom next? And then then he'll sort of bring it to the race and say, so look, Tomorrow you might think that you can't do much for us because, you know, you're not a lead-out rider, you're a climber, you're a young guy, the peloton's still scaring you a little bit, but you know tomorrow is 36 degrees, and I actually think that your job tomorrow is the most important one on the road. And the guy sits there going, what? He says, if you can keep us hydrated and fresh, then we get to do our job the best we can. So it would be really amazing if you could help us tomorrow by just bringing us bottles every time you can. And then all of a sudden, you've just got this whole team invested in Cav. And he goes up to every single individual in the team and sort of phrases what he wants in such an empowering way. So it's never an order. It's actually something that you want to be doing. And then next thing you're riding and you're getting more bottles than you can even like drink. <laughs> and then... <laughs> And then the guy on the front that has to ride the front, he's made it like 20, 30 Ks past the point that we expected him to be able to because the rider is actually empowered. And that's what makes Cav such an amazing leader is that certainly inwardly, he's uh, he's working. Are you guys still there? Oh, sorry, my screen just cut off. We'll have to edit that out. You know, Cav is certainly like internally putting a lot of pressure on himself in the day. But the way he actually expresses that is by empowering the people around him to give him the best scenario. So, you know, you could call it a selfish way of doing things, but the way he actually does it and delivers it, it's just so wholesome and incredible that you can't not help but just love Cav for every single thing that he does. And if it goes well, Cav is the only rider that consistently thanks his teammates in his post before he says anything about himself. And then if the race goes bad, he never lets anybody feel like they let him down. And he does a great debrief and he actually studies what happened and teaches everybody what they can do better the next time. So I think Cav is, in all aspects, he's a gentleman, but he's also just an artist in how he rides his own bike, but also how he runs his team. I, I, I have nothing I can even add to that. <laughs> that is, you know, Nathan, we, we were chatting yesterday about having you on and um, I didn't know that Cav was going to win today, although I had predicted it. Uh I'm glad we I'm glad we chose today. <laughs> we were talking about which day to bring you on. I think it, it ended up working out pretty perfectly. Were there any other storylines from today that we should hit on? I mean, we could talk about Cav all day, I think, but I think honestly, we're going to have another opportunity to do so this race. So, anything else struck strike anybody today? To something a little bit less um emotional and like tugging on the heartstrings to talk about was the rider protest that happened this morning before the race because there was a lot of confusion a lot of um miscommunication it felt like through the the cpa and the riders and the teams and everyone because there were so many mixed messages about what the protest was actually going to be when it actually happened there was none of the leaders jerseys went to the front to slow the peloton down it was gripal um, who really 
shut the thing down. But I think it's important to touch on that because of the first three days of the tour and, and what we watched the first three stages with the crashes. Were there any specific demands that came out of that protest or was it just the tour needs to, you know, make courses that don't have as many corners in them in the last 5K? According to the CPA in their statement on Twitter, what they were asking for is that there be a amendment to the three kilometer rule on stages like there were for stage three, where the time for riders is taken earlier in the stage. Um, I think there's mixed reports about what they were asking for. I've read and heard and seen eight kilometers and also five. So not really sure like what exactly they were asking for for stage three, but they asked for the G for the three kilometer rule to be extended on stage three and were, um, were turned down for that. And so after the crashes happened yesterday, they were protesting the three kilometer rule not being extended, them not uh, listening to the riders when they asked for that extension. What upset me a little bit about this was there just didn't seem to be that much solidarity. Greipel came to the front um, after a little while, sort of worked his way to the front because initially they were going to stop bang on kilometre zero and they probably started a one kilometre after that. And it looked like Greipel had to have a go at Philippe. Uh, who was up the front in green, obviously. And it seemed like Greipel got a little bit um, vocal about, right, we are stopping. This is what's happening. We were meant to stop before. And it wasn't until, yeah, Greipel came to the front, was the patron of the peloton by the looks of things, and stopped everybody that things, well, they stopped. The other the other's jerseys didn't come to the front. Philippe sort of moved back into the peloton sort of not hid away, but if you've seen that meme of Homer Simpson hiding away back into the bushes, it felt very much like that. Um, and um, it, I was just disappointed not to see yeah, the yellow jersey, polka dot jersey, and at least one of each member of every other team coming to the front and saying, yeah, this is what we're talking about. Or, or even um, much of the old guard it was just Greipel that did seem to take the reins there and say, right, this is what we're doing. I would have just liked to have seen a little bit more, yeah, solidarity. It just felt a bit of a washout more than anything and a wasted opportunity. Admittedly, we shouldn't compare it to the protest in, was it 97 with a Festina affair where they all sat on the road and um, uh, struck, struck for the day, struck for a bit. A but, different um, type of solidarity um, that, that, that day? That, yeah. Yeah, but at least that back then they were all together and it did, it, it, it made for a very good photo opportunity. Obviously, they were striking for completely different things, but there was a solidarity there where this one felt very wishy-washy. Sometimes I'm a little bit embarrassed because, you know, we talk a big game, but I think we've got to get our shit together a little bit more. And, you know, another example of when we actually we were in solidarity all together in that stage 19 of the Giro last year every rider was standing under the tent you know we didn't want to do our 240k stage in the cold rain before the penultimate mountain stage after what we'd already done that Giro and you know all the riders were sitting underneath that tent together every single one there was no one on the start line ready to go and it was like okay cool we've actually done something together here whether it's right or wrong that's not the debate here anymore but then after the stage so many of the riders actually went to the media and were like ah oh, riders are so soft we should have done this and it was like guys can't we just like have one time that we just even if you disagree just like all at least stand together i mean it's sort of this is indicative of the broader issues with the cpa with with you know any sort of riders union and and the attempts to organize and things like that because there's no question in my mind that the most powerful entity in professional cycling if it was properly organized is the professional riders no question in my mind right because they could essentially they could just refuse to do the tour de france and then you know aso which is com commonly considered basically the the most powerful entity in cycling they couldn't do anything about it, right? But time and time again, it's been really difficult to do that. And and I put a lot of blame on the CPA for this, to be perfectly honest. I mean, Dane mentioned this yesterday, but complaining about 
the finale of yesterday's stage and asking for an extension of the 3K rule on the morning of the stage is an absurd thing to do. This this route and this map has been available for months and months and months, and it's the CPA's job to look at these things and identify potential problems and pick them out and, and potentially make ask for changes, right? So, so that, that in and of itself is just not particularly like well done and you could you can't really blame like the the rider representatives for that because they are focused on the actual bike race there are professionals who work at the cpa uh the president of cpa johnny bunio for example it's their job to figure this stuff out right there's also a safety commissioner at the uci who is supposed to be checking these things out and deciding whether stage finishes are safe or not so there's that problem which is just, it was left far too late at that point, changing things. I mean, we, we, we always rag in the UCI for changing things last minute anyway, and that would have been maybe a, maybe an instance of changing it in the right direction, but it's still inconsistency, inconsistency from the UCI, which is not what we want to see. The second thing is I don't see how, I don't see how extending the 3K rule to the 8K to 8K really helps anything, because one of the problems is, yes, there's a three-kilometer rule, but it's only if you have an incident right? It's not that they're actually taking time at 3k, they're taking time at the finish line. And so you still have to, if you're still, if you're a GC rider, you still have to make sure you're in the front of the group, because if any gaps open up, you're still going to get docked time unless you actually fall down, or have a, a, a puncture or a mechanical, in which case you are given the time of the group that you were in. And so if you just extend those exact same rules out to 8k, you don't really solve anything. Because all of the same riders are still trying to be in the top 20, you still have this sort of packed front of the peloton. You still have everybody racing for for time. It, it, it doesn't help. If you were going to say, okay, we're going to actually 8K out is going to be the GC time point, which is a very different thing, that is potentially, I think, helpful. But that's not how the rule is currently written. The three-kilometer rule is not written that way, and so extending it to 8K doesn't really, doesn't really help anything. Uh, so I think that there's just there's just... All, this whole th whole debacle is just a little bit is poorly organized. Uh, it's unfortunate because what we all want is what we all want is a Tour de France that we can get through the first couple days, and a third of the peloton or more that still has all their skin. Right, that's what we want. We don't want all these crashes. We don't want all this chaos. It's it's spectacle, yes, but it's not really sport. And I think that a little bit better, a little bit more sort of pre-planning, a little bit more power in the hands of the individuals who are actually putting their own necks on the line, which would be the riders, could potentially help solve that. Uh, some relatively minor rule changes could help solve that. Look, Kaylee, I, I agree with you on all of those things, but I, I think the thing that we have to sort of keep in mind is that professional cycling is a bit of a moving and evolving target and a lot of things actually have improved a lot um, and as these things happen more questions come to the real discussion board but from my personal opinion here um, and it might be a little bit unpopular is that you know the tour de france's that we've seen the least fight for gc have been the ones where they've put in something like roubaix and I'm not saying that's not, like you said, it's, it's definitely a spectacle and it's for sure it's a skill that riders need to have and should have from doing it, you know, lots of times in their career, even before they're at the Tour de France. But the year Nibali won in 2014, he won by seven, almost eight minutes to the second place rider. And for me, it just loses the spectacle of what the Tour de France is about. And if we're going to be having, you know, these sort of semi-sprint stages and these sprint stages before the real show of the Tour de France kicks off, which is the fight for the yellow jersey, should we be having courses that put that into any jeopardy? And, you know, the obvious thing is, even if we had an eight-lane wide road straight for 200 kilometers, there would still be crashes. That's the inherent risk of cycling. It's the Tour de France. There's more pressure and importance on this race than any other. But I think just more the question needs to be asked, do we need to have you know, a small road for so long on a downhill before a sprint finish, that's a question. And would it have been as scary if there weren't crashes on the first two days? Because there is definitely like a pack mentality that happens. 
I've been in races where crashes have happened early and the whole vibe of the race changes. If there weren't crashes the first few days, I think there would have been a very different feeling coming into yesterday as well. So I think there's there's a lot of questions um, and not necessarily answers um, in this domain. And I can tell you as a rider, you know, it's quite frustrating when you realize like, wow, if I was there, I would have crashed, right? <laughs> but at the same time, it's, it is very easy to point fingers. Um, but the most important thing is, that I see is that these conversations just have to be focused and they need to actually be solution orientated as opposed to sort of casting blame. And I think the issue is right now, we don't necessarily have a forum where we can all talk that out. Yeah, that's very true. That there was a, there was a, I think it was, was it Quick Husky that, that proposed uh, basically opening the tour with something other than sprint stages. The idea being that if you sort of separate the GC and you and you you don't have 180 riders all capable of taking, in theory, the yellow jersey for the first couple of days that that things chill out. Do we think that would solve anything? Basically, open with a prologue, open with, well, maybe not like an uphill, maybe not open with a mountain stage. That'd be a bit rude, but op- open with something that would spread the GC picture out a little bit. I don't know how much that would actually help because I, I feel like. And Nathan, can I correct me if I'm wrong here? But I feel like the start of the Tour de France is going to be stressful and everyone's going to be gung-ho, kind of regardless of, of whether they're already 15 seconds down on GC or not, right? I I saw that and I kind of giggled. I don't think it changes anything. And if anything, it just makes cycling really lame because, you know, then it just goes to the favorites again, right? And to the mega teams with the best time trial bikes and the best time trialists. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, a guy like Guillaume Martin, who, you know, let's say he was on time and there was an uphill finish on stage eight, you know, a guy like him could take yellow and that's a huge thing for some of the smaller teams and a huge thing for the kind of narrative of the race. We don't want to have the four guys, the best four guys leading from the start to finish. It's kind of a lame story. So I don't think that works. And I think we also have to remember that cycling is dangerous, right? We know the risks, but what we're trying to say here or what I'm trying to say is like, how do we have a conversation to mitigate those risks and understand that there will still be crashes, there will still be problems, but how do we make it less inevitable? I'm just going to nip off for one minute because um, my partner's waters have just broke. <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay. Uh- Shadi, I think you should leave the podcast. Uh, we'll just see what's happening. It's all right. Plenty of time, I'm sure. <laughs> Shadi, get out of here. As, as the Shadi, midwife, get out of here. The midwife asked me the other go day, away. how do you know when you've got to go to the hospital? And I said, when my partner stood at the door with a bag. So I better just go check if she stood at the door with the bag. Back in a minute. Maybe. Shadi, just go. No, don't come back. Shadi, just get off this phone call. Stefan Kung for tomorrow. That's all I'm going to say. Tally ho. <laughs> Get out of here, Shadi. Before we move on from this topic, uh, very briefly, Abby, uh, the CPA had a sort of a, a, a statement out and Le Partiant had some quotes as well. Where are their positions on all this? Yeah, so um, according to the, the CPA released their statement about kind of their quote unquote demands or what they wanted to see having to do with respect for the riders. Um, it was a lot of jabber about the riders respect the race and the race needs to respect the riders as well. But the CPA was not aligned with the riders in terms of having a protest. They weren't keen on that. Also before the stage started just to throw more chaos on the madness, David Lepartian, um, in an interview with quest France said that he, put all blame on the riders for the crashes and that the courses had nothing to do with it. So that's, that's UCI president, David Lepartian, the UCI the president. <laughs> well, I mean, if the riders weren't there, the crashes wouldn't have happened, would they? I guess he's, it's <laughs> a great point. Great Ronan. Point. Yeah, I think we solved it. All right. Well, last little bit on crashing here, Ronan, you caught up with Peter Sagan this morning to ask him if he's a ninja. Uh, basically how he managed to hang on. He, so for those who, who missed the crash yesterday, he crashed with Caleb Ewan uh, and held onto his handlebars the entire time, landed on Caleb Ewan's wheel and just kind of slid across the pavement on Ewan's wheel and didn't like hardly even hurt himself uh, and probably prevented other crashes. So let's hear from Peter. Oh, 
Peter Sagan, we don't see you crash much, but you came down yesterday. You showed some incredible skills to hold on to your bike when you crashed. Are you a ninja or was that, did you think about that or just natural instinct? Crash happened that fast and uh, we were already out of the limit everyone, I think, because it was a lot, 150 meters. I was ready to sprint and then uh, it just happened and I found myself on the ground. And uh, that's it, you, you cannot think about uh, how you can survive, it just happened. And I fell on colored wheel and uh, I was slippering also a lot. But well, the biggest injury I have in my knee because I hit the chain ring and uh, and also with my, my leg on the side, the, yeah, I am also burned. But and you think you can sprint today? Then we will see. Peter's not a ninja, but this caravan is apparently a ninja because it's just disappeared from behind me without me hardly noticing. They, they, they unplugged my electricity, they took the seat from under me, and now I am literally on the ground at the Tour de France. Ronan, on the ground at the Tour de France, literally sitting in the grass. That's, uh, that's what we like to see. Okay, moving on from crashes and Cav in the last couple days. I've had a couple requests to update everybody on what Lachlan Morton is up to. So, Lachlan, uh, if you listen to the opening episode of our dailies, you heard an interview with him, and you know that he is racing the Peloton around the entire Tour de France route, including the transfers, self-supported. So he's basically bikepacking. It's 5,510 kilometers, uh, about 65,000 meters of climbing, and... Like I said, he's racing them to Paris. So he needs to get a bit of a lead ahead of, in particular, the big transfer at the end of the race, which the Peloton will fly from Bordeaux to Paris, and Lachlan will have to ride 700K from Bordeaux to Paris. So, quick Lachlan update, and I think we'll throw these into most of the episodes throughout the, the rest of the month. He is currently ahead of the Peloton. In fact, he's sort of in the middle of, looks like, stage five... Uh, if you head over to rafa.cc slash the alt tour, you can find his little dot and follow him around. Uh, the Peloton is in Rennes right now, and he is about halfway to Tours, uh, which puts him roughly probably about 150k ahead of the race at the moment. As I said before, I'm going to try to catch up with him once I get over. I think Ronan actually caught up with him this morning, right, Ronan? Or you at least saw him. I, I saw him twice, but that man wasn't for stopping today. I offered him baguettes, <laughs> co cookies, uh, multiple things, but yeah, he was on a mission. Didn't want him. No. But he, actually, he was in the most air old shoes I've ever seen. He was in a pair of sandals. His his pedals have apparently broke, uh, so he's on a pair of flat pedals with sandals. Um, yeah, so just as if it wasn't hard enough already, he's uh, he's now riding in a pair of sandals. <laughs> they weren't Shimano SPD sandals because I have a pair of those and they're sweet. No, they're definitely flat pedals. Um, oh, but man. he can't get help. Incredible oh, ventilation. I've I've never he seen can ventilation. Go, he like can it. go to a bike shop and buy stuff though if he has to. So. But but knowing Loki, he probably doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't seem to care, no. He seemed quite content. He's like, oh, this is great. My hamstrings are getting such a rest this last 400Ks. <laughs> uh, Nathan, you should have him on your podcast. I I'm going to let you plug your podcast now. Thanks for that. Yeah, I started a new podcast called The Gravel Log. It's uh, all things gravel. Not talking road, just gravel. Getting into the nuts and bolts, the weeds of kind of what the the new scene of gravel riding and gravel racing is. Um, Kaylee's actually been on the show where we're, we're punching that out in the next week or so. But yeah, Lockie's definitely on the list of people to talk to, but he's just a little busy for the next, what, 5,000 Ks? <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah, it is a great pod. I've listened to... You had you had, you had Stetna on already, and... And you, Colby you a, Pierce. A pretty, Colby Pierce, who if, if folks don't know Colby, he's a coach he's a pretty fascinating guy uh yeah loves to get into the nitty-gritty the details of things like bike setup and things like that particularly in aero but i imagine now in the gravel world as well he was yeah. my first coach fun fact 
Was it really? Oh, that's yeah. so cute. Look at that coming full circle. <laughs> it's called The Gravelog. Go check it out. It's a great pod. All right. It is just about time for us to wrap up today. But before we do, we must learn about tomorrow's stage from Yazebin. Let's hear from her. Today, we race in Mayenne. And Mayenne is one of the 82 departments of France that got renamed in 1790. The French Revolution was a watershed between the old and the new. And everything that had to do with the old system around feudalism, influential and wealthy land-owning noblemen and the power of the Roman Church had to change. Radically, months got new names, for example. They were Gregorian or Roman, so related to the Church of Rome. And new weights and measurements were introduced and all the regions bearing the name of the feudal lords were renamed after more neutral name givers like rivers, seas and mountains. France's motto in the French Revolution was Liberté, freedom, égalité, equality and fraternité, brotherhood. And that strife for equality was everywhere. For example, the newly formed departments had similar land areas and population sizes when they were drawn and renamed. But some of the changes imposed during that strife for the ultimate equality after the French Revolution never really caught on. The newly introduced months, for example, like Thermidor, the month of the warmth, thermos in Greek, returned to July after Julius Caesar, after the revolution. But the departmental structure and the names stayed to this day. This department is also home to the Boucle de la Mayenne, a short stage race that was won twice by Mathieu van der Poel in the early years of his career, which was, um, well, uh, 2017 and 2018, so, well, four years ago. Just south of our Finnish place, we find the Roman Bath in Antram. They were built in the second century and discovered only in 1987. And they were in a remarkably good state because they built a church over it. The Roman bath ritual went as follows. The user began in the changing room and then they went through the cold room and directly into the warm room where they could slowly get used to the heat. They could have massages there as well. Then they entered the heat chamber where they would sweat abundantly. The doors then opened onto the hot room where the user could bathe in a large pool. And to complete the ritual, it was necessary to return to the cold room and take a dip in the non-heated water. And this Roman tradition is still in practice in the Nordic countries and in saunas around the world. And finally, Laval is the birthplace of Jacques Durand, the Frenchman who was always attacking and sometimes got rewarded for his aggressive racing style. There was this one win after a monster breakaway in the 1992 Tour of Flanders. He and Thomas Wegmuller attacked with 217 kilometers to go and he won the race. He also won three Tour de France stages and now covers the race as a commentator for Eurosport in France and for GCN. So, tomorrow's stage, Wednesday's stage five of the Tour de France is our first time trial. Abby, tell me about it. Okay. You know how much I love pronouncing French names. This is why I've asked you. Yes. Hey, I, I, can, I can be here for a little bit of coaching if you need. Thank you, Nathan. I'll bring in my coffee this accent extraordinaire. Mm. <laughs> So stage five of the Tour de France is a 27.2 kilometer time trial that goes from change. It's spelled change, but it's got a little whoop on the final E. Well, you're in an interesting part of France. You know, there's a lot of words that actually don't quite sound exactly like they're supposed to. Um, But we're going to roll with how you said it. I'm going to give you 10 points. Thank you. (laughs) To Lavelle Espace... Mayena? You put some Spanish on that. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Hispase. Laval Espace Mayenne. 
Oh, espas? There's no, they don't pronounce the E. If I was no. pronouncing this as it was spelled, I would say change to lavala space man. So <laughs> now you just sound like the Google Maps lady. Lavala space man. The course is relatively flat, but it does have a couple lumps in it. There's a lump at the start and a lump at the end, but nothing too insane. It does start and finish really close to each other. So there's a lot of technical turns. It kind of weaves around the countryside a bit and um, crosses a river or two. So, well, one river twice. But yeah, so that's pretty straightforward 27.2 kilometer time trial. Do we think Thunderpole will hold on to yellow through this time trial? Yes, I've just sat here and watched him do an extensive cooldown, uh, which I haven't seen him do, certainly not yesterday. Uh, so he seems to be taking tomorrow quite quite seriously. Uh, I've also had a tip off to check out his bike tomorrow because apparently he has taken it very seriously. He wants to try and retain yellow. Should we make some picks and we'll wrap up for today? Well, we've just said that Vanderpool is taking it seriously, so is that not the picks then? <laughs> just call it a day. Yeah. If you take something seriously, everyone else is, is kind of screwed. Let's start. Let's start with picks. Abby, who do you got? Walt Van Art. Walt Van Art? Yeah, that's my pick. Ronan? Stefan Bissiger. Ah, oh, that was mine. That was mine. Sneaky, Ronan. <laughs> Nathan, who do you think for tomorrow? I think it's a, it's a pretty hard one, to be honest, because I, I normally would have said Roglic. Uh, but, you know, I think if he can stay within a minute, I think that's like a victory. Um, you know, I saw he was like a mummified rider this morning with bandages. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think there's going to be different kinds of victory tomorrow. But, yeah, I think Wald Van Aert's going to be pretty hard to beat tomorrow. Pretty good guess. Uh, and, of course, Shadi, before his wife, sorry, partner, went into labor, uh, picked Stefan Kung. <laughs> So we'll let him know tomorrow whether he was right or wrong. Uh, he'll obviously be quite focused on that, I imagine. I'm going to go with, since since Ronan stole my Stefan Bissiger uh, pick, who has been very impressive throughout this season in the TTs, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with the, the home team here. I'm going to go Brandon McNulty. Wouldn't that be a coup? I, I like Brandon. He's a good guy. He has shown some good TT form. This is more of a heart pick than a head pick. Uh, but, you know, you never know. Maybe you can do it. All right. It is time to wrap up for today. Thank you, Nathan, for joining us. I think we'll have you back a couple more times throughout the Tour de France. C'est mon plaisir, and I look forward to it. It'll be great. And the rest of us will be back tomorrow. Bye, everybody. À demain. <laughs> <laughs>